If you'll turn in your Bibles to Ephesians, the second chapter. A few weeks ago, I spoke to you about the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And I want to pick those thoughts back up and give you a very brief recap from a few weeks ago because we have had a couple sermons in between where I felt led to go in some different directions. But let's read in Ephesians 2 and 19 as we consider this morning the repository of truth. And don't let that word repository throw you. It might be more along the lines of saying, you could say the library of truth or the thing that that holds on to and preserves the truth of God. That's what a repository is. Ephesians 2 and 19. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Now watch the language. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. In Luke, the 20th chapter, Jesus himself referred to himself as the cornerstone when he says he beheld them and said, What is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This, of course, is the Apostle Paul that we're reading here in the book of Ephesians. And in Acts, the fourth chapter, and in 1 Peter, Peter says, This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And a few weeks ago, we talked about Jesus as the cornerstone. He, it starts with Him, it ends with Him, and all points in between, it comes back to Him. We talked about how the cornerstone relates to the accuracy of the measurement of the building. If the cornerstone is off, then the whole building is, as I use the word, honker-jawed. It's all off. So the accuracy of the measurement of the building has to do with the cornerstone. Isaiah 28 and 16, the prophet Isaiah said that he, Christ, is a foundation stone. He is a tried stone. He is a precious stone. And he is a sure stone. Not only does it have to do with the accuracy of measurement of the building, but it also has to do with the orientation of the building or how the building sits or sets, as we would say. 1 Peter 2 and 6 speaks of Jesus as the cornerstone. It means that he lies at the extreme corner. And I would be remiss if I didn't point out that Christ has gone to some extremes to be that cornerstone. He has been to places you will never have to go, praise God, and I can and you can never go. He is the extreme cornerstone and it yields a precise angle so the building sets as though it should rest. Not only is it for accuracy of the measurement of the building and for the orientation of the building, but it is for the celebration that goes on inside the building. Think about it. It, it, I mentioned to you it involves sacrifice, that when they would lay the foundation stone, they often would sacrifice an animal. In some very strange cultures, they would sacrifice people and put their blood upon the cornerstone. Today, as I mentioned, it's more ceremonial and ornamental, where you may see a, a cornerstone sitting out front of a building where it actually becomes like a time capsule, and they put stuff inside it to remember the day that the foundation of that building was laid, and yet that's just ornamental. That but that stone sitting out front bears no weight. Christ, the Son of God, the cornerstone, bore all the weight of your sin. So think about the celebration part of the cornerstone. 
We should celebrate our Lord. We should be not just looking at Him from an ornamental or a or ceremonial type thing. Is He ornamental or ceremonial or on a checklist for us today? We want Him to be the focus, you see? He, because He is. As Brother Luke said, whether we acknowledge Him as King, He's still King of Kings, right? But think about why you go to certain buildings. <laughs> you know, there's behind my office building in Carrollton is the probate building and there's a lot of traffic going in and out of that probate building a lot of people going to get their tags especially certain times of year when their name comes up to pay for their tags on their cars and we'll have people come in and say hey is where's the tag office that happens just on a regular basis you know why do you go to certain buildings why do you go to the courthouse you know that that building has been set there as a courthouse to hear cases. You know that if you come to see me in my law office, you're coming there most of the time. might be for a Bible study. That happens uh, uh, frequently. But if somebody's coming on business, they're coming to see the lawyer. You go to that building for that particular reason. You go to the probate building for this reason. Those buildings are set there for a reason. You see, and I'm telling you, child of God, that the building of God, the church of God, on which the cornerstone, it's founded upon the cornerstone Jesus Christ, it is there for celebration. To celebrate the name of Jesus. I mentioned this morning, the, the church of God is the gate of heaven. It is the place where God descends in a most beautiful way when He does, when He chooses to. You know, I told you years ago, there was this uh, church that had this little bell up above the, uh, the pulpit. And uh, at certain times throughout the, uh, throughout the, ceremony, the um, worship service, that bell would ring. And somebody said, well, what does that bell mean? And they said, well, that's, that's signaling when the Holy Spirit comes in. <laughs> You can't ring a bell and bring the Holy Spirit in. That's not how it works. You can't magnetize the Holy Spirit. You can't uh, manipulate or bribe the Holy Spirit. We just have to beg the Holy Spirit to come and be among us. Lord, come and visit your gate. Come and visit your church. Come and visit your building because it is His building. And I'm not referring to the brick and the mortar. I'm not referring to that because God's people have met in all kinds of different places throughout the centuries. It started out in the homes of people. And I've said many times that I believe before, before it's all said and done and the Lord comes back, that because of persecution and because of the way the world will be, we'll be right back in the homes, meeting in the homes again. So ask yourself, is He the cornerstone? Is He my cornerstone? Indications that He is the cornerstone or He is not the cornerstone. The book of Isaiah says that there are those that make haste to get away from Him. Do we make haste to get away from the cornerstone? Then He may not be our cornerstone. There are those in Matthew 21, it says that their house was left unto them desolate because they rejected the cornerstone. Do we have a desolations in our lives? Romans 9 and 33 says that He was a stumbling block. It was an actual stone that somebody stumbled over. <laughs> and we find ourselves stumbling over the Word of God and say, well, I just don't think that applies to me. <laughs> Jesus said in Luke, the 20th chapter, that if the stone falls upon you, it would grind you to powder. But if you fall upon the stone, you would be broken. That's where we want to be. We want to be falling upon the stone and saying, oh, Lord, help me. The brokenness of the child of God and falling upon the stone, Jesus Christ, is part of their experience. Psalms 118, it says, speaking of the rejection of the cornerstone, he says, this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes that the Lord would establish a cornerstone even though it was rejected. Is He marvelous in your eyes? 1 Peter 2 and 5, He says that if you believe, if you believe that Jesus is the cornerstone, if, if He is precious to you, then it means that He is the cornerstone in your life. And if not, then 
What is he? What is his value to us? I mentioned a couple weeks ago, there is no scenario in our day and time, there never has been, but there's no scenario in which we would deny Christ. There's no scenario. That time, if it ever was, is past. It doesn't matter if it's an extreme situation or just a casual conversation. There is no scenario to deny the Son of God. You see, important documents are placed in the repository. Christ Himself, He speaks of Him as the Living Word, capital W. Don't ever forget the distinction between the written Word, the Gospel, and the, and the Living Word, Jesus. The walking, breathing Son of God, Living Word. That's one of His names. He is a walking, breathing document for us, if you will. He is the Son of God who has the truth that we need. And you remember me, I, I'm not going to rehash the example, but you remember me giving you the example of the old school, of the old farmhouse where the road used to go in front of the farmhouse and the, the building was set oriented to the, to the road. Well, the road moved. And child of grace, I'm telling you, the orientation of the building of God does not move because of the fickleness of men. It's the same. If they move the road from in front of the old farmhouse to the back side of the old farmhouse, the front is still the same. The orientation of the, of the old church of God is the same. It, is, it just may not look like it, but it's still the same. The road may move, but the orientation of the building, the Word of God, the truths of God, they do not move. So let's talk about the repository. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. Matthew 16, Jesus said, Whom do men say that I am? And they said, Well, some of them say that you're John. Some of them say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're one of the prophets. There was a lot of some say going on, wasn't it? But he asked Peter, and he said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the foundation stone. Christ, the Son of the living God. And you say, Well, yeah, I get that. Well, if you say, Well, yeah, I get that, then it's not amazing to you. <laughs> That the Son of God would come down and tabernacle with men and interact with sinful men and speak to them and even ask, whom do men say that I am? He should rock our foundations. You know, he made some audacious claims. Now, I want to talk about that. What, what we are to preserve as the church of God. <laughs> you see, Jesus said over and over, he said, I've come to do my Father's will. So I want you to think about these things as we consider what we are to stand for, the truth that we are to stand for. Now, let me just cover this with you. The first public appearance of Jesus Christ was at his baptism. He'd been around, you know, for 33, excuse me, for 30 years. And we see little snippets of, you know, when he was born, and then we see him with 12 years old and so forth. But all those quiet years, his first public appearance was to go and be baptized. That's a good indication right there, a good model for us to follow, is it not? If we want to follow the Lord, then be baptized. He didn't, he didn't get baptized to become the Son of God. He was baptized to identify Himself as the Son of God. You don't get baptized to become a son or a daughter of God. You get baptized to identify yourself as a son or a daughter of God. So the first appearance that He made was to be baptized. The first miracle that He performed was at a wedding where He turned, turned the water into wine. The first message that I find recorded by Jesus was a private message. And it was to a man named Nicodemus who was supposed to know everything there was to know about theology. And he knew absolutely nothing. He was astonished. He was overwhelmed by the message that Jesus gave. He said, can a man enter into his mother's womb again and be born again in that way? And it was just like, it just went over his head. He didn't get it. And he went away confused because he was caught up in a system that, 
and a system of teaching that was not, maybe not intentionally, but for whatever reason, it was not clinging to the repository of truth. Jesus made some audacious statements to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus went away scratching his head. Don't worry about Nicodemus, though. Nicodemus is in heaven. Nicodemus was a child of God at that time, or he never would have come and asked the questions that he asked. See? Don't worry about Nicodemus' destination. Now, Nicodemus' response was, how can these things be? The first account that we read of Jesus converting someone to the truth, I'm not talking about being born again, but the first account that I read of Jesus changing someone's mind is in John the fourth chapter, the woman at the well, a Gentile woman, a Samaritan woman who would have been considered just nothing but trash to the Jewish people. They hated each other. You talk about division. You talk about racial division. The Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans in turn hated the Jews. And the first woman, the first person that Jesus changed their mind, she was already a born again child of God, but he changed her mind, was that woman at the well. Okay? And you come on down to his first public message. And that was in Luke, the fourth chapter. And I hope you see a pattern that develops here. In Luke, the fourth chapter, Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he preaches on the Sabbath day. They called upon him and he speaks about the scripture being fulfilled on that particular day. And then he looks at them and he says, you will declare unto me, physician, heal thyself. And he said, you'll tell, it's no question that a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. So Jesus then begins to preach to them on the subject of election. He speaks about the woman who was a widow in Samaria. And the prophet was sent to her and not to any of the Jewish women. Because in the sovereign choice and mind of God, God can do as He pleases and none can stay His hand. And nobody can question Him. You say, just because, like my daddy said, do what I say and don't question me. No, because your dad wasn't God. God is God and He's always right and His character never fails or changes. So when He chose the Samaritan woman there to spare her her from famine... It was God's choice, and He was right in doing that. And Jesus preaches that message to those Jews. And that's a, by the way, that's a non-Jewish woman. And then He says in the days of Elisha, whenever uh, the, uh, the Syrian, Naaman the Syrian comes down, and he uh, is healed from his leprosy, there were many lepers in Israel. Jesus makes that point. He says there was a lot of people dying of leprosy in Israel, but God and His sovereignty and His love and His mercy chose a foreign general who was an enemy to Israel. And spared him from his leprosy. Now this is the Son of God talking. You understand? And you would think they would show some respect for the Son of God. You know what they did? They gnashed with their teeth and they took him and they carried him out to the brow of the hill and they would have cast him down when he spoke of the electing sovereign power of his Father. But it wasn't Jesus' time. I've often, you know, I don't think Hollywood could even capture that, that scene. But I wonder if Jesus just, Jesus just went like that and they all just sort of went into hypnotic state. But whatever he did, he's at the brow of the hill. They're about to cast him off for the message that he spoke to them. And he just walks right through them because he's God. See? Doesn't sound like the public ministry of Jesus is starting out like we would want our public ministry to start out, does it? Everybody's rejecting Him. They're walking away scratching their head and they're going, what is He talking about? Well, if you come on down to 
I don't know for sure if the Beatitudes happened before John the 6th chapter or not, but either way, if Matthew the 5th chapter occurred before Jesus speaks the Bread of Life sermon in John 6, whichever way, Matthew the 5th chapter is Jesus giving the constitution of His kingdom. I preached that to y'all several years ago. That's the constitution of Jesus' kingdom where He lays down the blesseds and He lays down the preamble and He tells how His kingdom is going to operate. If, if, if Matthew the 5th chapter is the constitution of His kingdom and the activity that goes on in His kingdom, then John the 6th chapter is the, basically the articles of faith of His kingdom. Basically stating, this is the way that it is in my kingdom. This is what to believe in my kingdom. So we're going to spend the remaining few minutes of our time on John the 6th chapter. And I want to... I've thought about what, what angle to preach this from because you can study John the 6th chapter from many different angles. I thought, well, maybe we'll study it from the angle of I will raise them up at the last day, the times that that occurs. And I'm giving you a few hints here if you want to study John 6. There's many different angles you can study that. Study it from the standpoint of the, repeti- uh, the way he repeats, I will raise them up at the last day. Studying it from the standpoint of how he says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. That's repeated. Uh, study it from the standpoint of the new birth. When Jesus ties it all together and says at the end of the chapter that what I'm trying to get across to you is that the new birth, as he told Nicodemus, it's a sovereign act of God. It's not the choice of man. There's so many different ways to study it. But I want to study it and look at it for a few minutes here from the, from the standpoint of this. Look at the reactions that the people gave him to his truth. Notice I didn't say it's my truth, it's His truth. I want to contend and, and be faithful to the truth of God, but notice the reactions that were given to the truth that He presents. Okay, very quickly, if you start in John the 6th chapter, you'll see that this is the time when Jesus fed the 5,000. Jesus goes up into the mountain that night after feeding the 5,000. The apostles cross the sea and go to the other side. And during the night, Jesus walks across the water. There's a storm there. He says, it is I, be not afraid. And when the people on this side of the the Sea of Galilee wake up the next day, they see he's gone. So they take shipping and they go across themselves pursuing him. And when they find him on the other side, I want you to notice verse 2 of chapter 6 says, a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles. They were not that interested in his words, but they were interested in his works and his miracles. And then he feeds the 5,000 and they're even more interested. They're hungry again. It's morning. It's breakfast time. Let's eat. So they show up on the other side and they say, Master, I want you to notice the interaction. How did you get over here? And now he doesn't answer that question. He says, you seek me. This is verse 26. You seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you ate of the loaves. Labor not for the meat which perishes, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. And then this interaction goes. Notice the first interaction, verse 28. It says, what shall we do? They're excited. They're like, what do we do to work the works of God? And Jesus kind of lowers the boom on them and he says, just believe on me. That's the work of God. And they said, well, what sign are you going to show us so that we can believe on you? See, it's starting to get a little warmed up here. We need a sign. What, what more of a sign would they need than for, that he fed the 5,000 the day before? <laughs> would that not be enough for you? It would be enough for me. Uh, what about the miracles that he'd been performing? Healing the lepers and doing all the things that he was doing that they were following. they already seen those things, but they want another sign. Isn't that something? They said, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness and Moses gave them manna in the wilderness and Jesus rebukes them sharply in verse 32. And he says, Moses did not give you that bread in the wilderness. And you can go read Exodus the 16th chapter and you'll see it. Moses didn't give you the bread, but my father gave you the bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. 
Jesus begins to cue them in on what he's talking about. And they say in verse 34, their reaction is, give us this bread. If this bread comes from heaven, give it to us. And Jesus looks at him square in the eyes and he says, I am the bread. <laughs> I'm it. What you're looking at is the bread of God. It's what's given. Now this causes quite a stir among them. And I want you to notice what Jesus said. He says, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth in me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. Now watch this in verse 37. And I was thinking about this this morning. What, what an all-encompassing statement. Jesus says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. Now watch it. But should raise it up again at the last day. What an all-encompassing, audacious amazing statement. You see, Jesus is reaching back before the foundation of the world because that's when the Father gave the children of God and the covenant of grace. And I'll raise those up again at the last day. <laughs> I mean, who in the world would ever even think to make a statement like that? Before the foundation of the world, God gave me this number, this host of children, and they will be with me. And I'll raise them up again at the last day. That is audacious, is it not? <laughs> He says, the will, the purpose of me being here is that all that God has given me shall come to me. There's no possibility that that won't happen. You see, now look at verse 41. The Jews murmured. They didn't murmur over the fact that He said, all the Father giveth me shall come to me. They murmured over the fact that He said, I am the bread of life. Is not this Joseph's son? You see, he's, they're getting worked up. And like Brother Luke said, all he's doing is telling them the truth. And they're just getting worked up and worked up and worked up. And Jesus says, murmur not now. Calm down. Murmur not. Because no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. You see, Jesus is drawing this thing up called salvation. He's drawing it up with such a tight string that there's no way to get anything else out of it other than to say, well, this must have everything to do with what Jesus does and what the Lord does. And that's it. He's tying it up so tightly that there's no way, there's no breath of, of, of a way that you can come out from under that. Jesus says, all that God has given me, all that were gifted to me before the world was formed, they shall come to me. And you can't come to me. Because you know some of them were thinking, well, let's just come to Jesus then. Let's just get on our horses and let's just move forward and come to Him. And Jesus said, you can't. <laughs> He's just tying the string a little bit tighter. He said, you can't. Except, thank God for exceptions, right? Except the Father which has sent me draw Him. And I will raise Him up at the last day. And I'll go ahead and let the cat out of the bag in, in terms of what we're speaking of here. Because Jesus makes it absolutely crystal clear that when He says, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw Him, according to verse 65, He makes it clear that He's speaking of being born again. Because He says... Therefore said I unto you that no man can come to me except it were given unto him of my Father. And verse 63 says it's the Spirit that quickeneth. The whole focus of what Jesus is saying is you don't do anything to gain your salvation, but it's all on me. And if eating of me, eating of my flesh and drinking of my blood is a metaphorical way that Jesus says, if you believe on me, then you're feasting on me. See, are we feasting on Jesus this morning? He said that every single one 
that is given to me in the covenant of redemption before the foundation of the world, every single child of God will come to me. Listen, child of grace. The repository of truth is God's church. We are charged by God Himself and by those that came before us to maintain the truth. And sadly, what you see here, even the Son of God, when He maintained the truth of God to them, notice what they say in verse 60. Many therefore of His disciples, when they had heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Oh, I hope and pray that everyone under the sound of my voice does not say that. Don't say that it's a hard saying. Say it's the only hope that you have. That Christ has touched you with His grace. The Spirit of God has touched you. The Spirit of Christ. That God has known you in a loving way before the world was even formed. And Jesus came to fulfill that purpose that He would pay for your sins so you can be in heaven one day. They scratched their heads and they said, that's a hard saying. And Jesus knew in Himself that His disciples murmured at it. By the way, if that's something that causes you to murmur in your heart of hearts, Jesus knows it. Isn't He a good God? Aren't you glad that whether we murmur or not is not dependent upon whether we go to heaven or not? (laughs) He knew that they murmured. And He said, doth this offend you? What and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where He was before? Which they're going to see that, by the way. It is the Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are Spirit and they are life, but there are some of you that believe not. He says right there, He says, there's some of you that can't, that can't feast on My flesh and, and rejoice in My blood. Because you've got things in the way. Somebody's taught you something that you've got to do this and you've got to say this. What must we do to work the works of God? Jesus said believe. And believe is just a, a derivation of the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> you can't believe unless you're born again. <laughs> you know, a baby doesn't cry when he comes into the world unless he's alive. If you believe, it's because you're born again. If you're born again, it's because the Spirit has quickened you and God has drawn you to Him. You see? Jesus said knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray Him. And He said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto Me except it were given unto him of My Father. You can't believe unless God has borne you again. You can't come to the Lord unless the Lord comes to you in His sovereign grace. Don't let this be us in verse 66. From that time, many of His disciples went back and walked no more with Him. Now, from a natural standpoint... We have to say, Jesus' ministry is not getting off to a very good start. (laughs) Right? You know, he's talked to Nicodemus, who's supposed to be the the premier theologian of the day, and he goes away scratching his head. That guy doesn't know what he's talking about. (laughs) You know, he talks to these multitudes, and and they, they walk away from him. Can you imagine how that made Jesus feel? At the time, he was God. He was all God, but he also was all man. You ever had somebody walk away from you, just just maybe snub you and just walk away or ignore you? It's exactly what they did to Jesus on a much greater scale. And Jesus looks at the twelve. <laughs> and I look at this beautiful congregation here today. And I say, will you also go away? I hope your response is like Simon Peter's. Because Simon Peter's, you know, sometimes we give him a hard time, but he said the right thing right here. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that Thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. I hope that's our response. You see, whether, whether that's our response or not does not take away the fact that Jesus is the cornerstone. That all of our salvation rests squarely upon His shoulders. That our sins being paid for rested upon Him. That our being chosen in the covenant of grace to no merit or works of our own, it rests upon the Father's will and the Spirit of God coming into the heart of the child of God. As Jesus describes right here, no man can come. No man can be born again except the Father through the Spirit touch the heart of the child of God. Oh, child of grace, don't walk away from that. It kind of lays you bare, doesn't it? You say, wait a minute, Brother Tim, are you saying that... I don't have anything whatsoever to do with how I am saved. That's exactly what I'm saying. So you, when you are laid bare like that, you say, it's not my works, it's not my prayer, it's not my baptism, it's not holding on, it's not persevering, it's not this, it's not that. It leaves you with no option. <laughs> it leaves you with no choice other than to look up and say, all glory to God. You see that? Now you think... Is that what Jesus was trying to get across to that crowd? Absolutely. You know, some of those people went away and they said, Oh, that guy was real self-focused. All he did was talk about himself. They talk about he was the bread and he was the blood and he was the flesh. And he, you know, he is a really self-centered individual. I guarantee you there's many that went away saying, I don't want to hear him anymore because he's focusing everything on himself. That's exactly what he was doing. And he has the right to do that because he's God. If I got up here and told you all about me and the great things I've done and all this stuff, that y'all get tired of that real quick. <laughs> and we might tell a little funny story here or there and say, well, this happened or that happened to make a point or to make an example. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But if I just get up here and I say, okay, I'm going to tell y'all all about me today. I think, our, I think our crowd would dwindle really quick. I don't want to tell you about me. I want to tell you about my Savior. And He's got every bit of my salvation covered. The cornerstone that everyone practically rejected was still the cornerstone. And he still paid for the sins of his people, even though most of the people didn't even believe what he was doing. Christ is the cornerstone. Has he rocked your foundations? Does that rock the foundations of maybe things that you've been told your whole life or things that you've thought or even things that you think now? If it does, then that's what it's supposed to do. And it's supposed to lay us bare and say, all oh, glory to God. Will you also go away? I hope not. I hope we will say all oh, glory to God because there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And as Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. One of the best things that you can do in terms of following the Lord is make this known. You say it's kind of, kind of um, embarrassing to get up and Say, Lord, I love you and I believe you've saved me and stand before the people and, and say, this is why. <laughs> it does feel a little embarrassing. It does feel a little uh, strange. But it pleases God. And you know what? It really encourages me. <laughs> it really encourages me. So if that is your burden or your desire this morning, to follow the Lord, believing that He is your only hope, He's your only possible way that you're going to be in heaven one day, then we give you that opportunity as we stand and sing.